Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's happening, football fans? Mark Schwarzer joins me again, returning from sunny Spain. And we're joined by a special guest, Teo Pelitzeri, one of the voices of Australian football to talk all things Ballon d'Or, a new look Man United, Matilda's battered at home, and the boys get heated in an interesting game of start, bench, and sell. All that and plenty more coming up on the Gagan Pod. What's happening, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Gagan Pod. It's a very special edition because we have been rampaged with injuries on this one. Michael Bridges is out of action. Thomas Sorensen is out. And so Mark Schwarzer is back from wherever he's been. He's jet-setting around the world. Sometimes he's in Spain. I can never keep track of this guy, but he's back joining us. And we have a very, very special guest, Teo Pelizzeri. You may have heard his voice on the coverage of the A-Leagues, but today he's joining us to talk football from all around the world Teo, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure and uh, really exciting to be on with the both of you, Claude and Mark. Mark, mate, uh, we missed you last week. Where were you? I heard rumours you were back over in sunny Spain. You're just living it up, aren't you? Uh, those rumours, I can say, uh, were correct. I was. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> I was back for a couple of days with a mate um, on a bit of a, a jolly up playing some golf, which was great fun. Brilliant, brilliant. Well earned, well earned from Mark Schwartz. He works his socks off here, doesn't he? Um, we're going to kick it off, guys, with the biggest breaking news of the day because it was literally just less than half an hour ago the Ballon d'Or 2021 was announced. It was Leo Messi. Teo, this one's been greeted a little bit differently than previous ones, and I think given that Lewandowski wasn't awarded this last year, how much are you reading into it? Are you happy with the decision? Leo Messi well-deserved, or is this getting a bit out of hand now? I, I think as soon as the full-time whistle went on, on the Copa America and Messi won his first international trophy, that it was going to sway the votes. And and it's hard to scrutinise 170 journalists worldwide, but we do tend to assume that they default to the major tournaments, the biggest events and the biggest games in order to make their decision. I think Lewandowski, the injustice everyone feels is that the Ballon d'Or wasn't presented at all last year, and that was his opportunity. And and Mark, how how does it leave you feeling? Messi wins for the seventh time. His legacy was already assured, so it doesn't really change how we feel about him. But it is going to, I think, fundamentally change how we look back at the career of Lewandowski, because he's missing that one crowning glory as an individual award. Um, I, I'm actually disappointed because I think uh, Robert Lewandowski actually deserved it, um, ahead, even ahead of uh, Messi. As, as wonderful as Messi has been as a player, um, and yes, they did win the Copa America last uh, this in, in the summer. And I, I thought, you know, it was finally Argentina did it. Finally, Messi's won that major trophy, like you said, for his country. However, I still think. Uh, Lewandowski, you, you know, they talk about the Ballon d'Or being over a number of years as well. And I know Messi's been phenomenal, but he hasn't been as good last season, I don't think, as Robert Lewandowski. And if you look at the last couple of seasons, then you take even this start of this season into consideration. Robert Lewandowski's been miles ahead, in my opinion. So I, I'm, 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 I'm not surprised, uh, but I'm, I'm disappointed more than anything else. It's not like the name recognition helped Ronaldo, of course. I mean, he finished seventh or eighth, and then you've got Jorginho finishing third, and his performances for Chelsea in the Euros. After the Euros final, the case for Jorginho was as strong as it had ever been, and, and he's ended up third, which is a great achievement. But is it plausible that he could step into the breach as a, a post-Messi, post-Ronaldo candidate, given that Lewandowski can only continue his outrageous goal-scoring form for so long? Um, I, listen, I think I think uh, Lewandowski again started the season incredibly well, uh, and I think he'll be there or thereabouts coming into the season. His his stats will again, I think, will be phenomenal. Jorginho, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, he, he's had a phenomenal uh, twelve months, and I thought before that he was good, but he wasn't 
the level of, of say, a Messi or a Ronaldo's been, or even a Robert Lewandowski, how he's been the last couple of years. So I think it truly has been a one-off. The next 12 months will obviously be interesting to see where Jorginho ends up, you know, how far he goes. Look, Italy could miss out on going to the World Cup. That's another story altogether, huh, Claude? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It took you you three minutes. It took you three and a half minutes to bring that one on. Well done. Um, Well done. But then, but then, you know, that kind of that almost that cancels out my other argument for Robert Lewandowski because you know Poland don't do particularly well uh, internationally. So, I, I think if you if you look at it as an individual award and what they've what he's achieved, um, it's up there. It's right up there, and I just think it's too easy to give it to Messi. I, mm. I don't think he's been outstanding. Yeah, but I think Robert Lewandowski's been outstanding for the last twelve months. Yeah, I kind of agree with you on that one. And Jorginho, just on that, he's had a stinking last month as well. Doesn't help. It doesn't help for the, uh, us football fans. As you know, our short-term memory is usually the way we judge players. But look, Lewandowski's second in this one. He won the FIFA Best Award last year. And so my next question for you gentlemen is, we now have this FIFA Best Award, the ice cream cone, right? That silver ice cream cone. And I think that's the only thing that it loses compared to the Ballon d'Or. It's not a very pretty trophy, but it makes a whole lot more sense, in my opinion. I mean, the Ballon d'Or take nothing away from the worldwide journalists. But when you look at even the criteria of it. Number one is the season they've had and what they've won. Number two is the class, talent, flair of a player, which just sounds really vague. There's no real uh, direction as to what they are judging that on. And that kind of ruled Karen Benzema out before we even started. And then the third one is also, as Schwartzy mentioned, their overall career. So how can anyone ever compete with Messi or Ronaldo? Is the Ballon d'Or outdated? Yep. I think it is. Yeah. I, I really do believe it is. Um, in terms of the criteria, the award itself, no, but obviously the criteria, yes. Um, and that, like I said before, it, 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 based on that, it's really easy to give it to Messi. Yeah. Because he has been insane. He's been off the charts in terms of, 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 of an individual talent, ability, performances. Um, I think the way that so far the FIFA Best Award's been handed out has been certainly a better, I think, a better gauge of of an individual's performances over a course of 12 months and not the rest of it, the flair and all that stuff that goes with it. Yeah, we've all been entertained. We love it. But ultimately, does that then decide, does that swing you in being uh, being the best player in the world, given the Ballon d'Or? I think in Messi's case, for a lot of people, it does. And even people look at it now and go, well, Barcelona are awful last season and you take Messi out of it that would have been far worse they were only as good as they were last season because of Messi so there's another reason for people to go well that's why he has to win it again I, I, I'm, I'm sorry but you know as, as I'm a massive fan of Lionel Messi I think he's an amazing player but I still think that Robert Lewandowski has been, been robbed when it comes to assessing the assessors, journalists versus the voters for the FIFA Best Award, I, I think Mark is absolutely right that the FIFA Best Award is probably a more credible award in terms of its merits, but the Ballon d'Or has the history and the prestige, and that is what makes it uh, perhaps a, a really even contest between the two. Yeah, and and I think when we have a look at the FIFA Best Award, the fact that they now have 25% fan vote, I think fans absolutely know which one they prefer. And I agree with both of you. I think the only thing about the Ballon d'Or is when you win it, you get to hold that up and you get to be compared to the Ronaldinho's. You get to be compared to, you know, who we got, uh, Ruth Hullet, who I saw photos of him popping up recently on the Chelsea page and holding that. And so I guess you go into this catalogue of great players when you lift that up. But that's probably the only thing that it has over the FIFA Best Award. They added a striker's trophy today in the awards ceremony, which just felt like... It was purely done so Lewandowski didn't feel left out, which is just strange that you add that and you don't add the other positions. Schwartz, I wanted to go to you with the Yashin trophy, which went to Gianluigi Donnarumma. I am not a goalkeeper by any means, but I felt as though Edward Mendy's been robbed of this one. Thoughts? Yeah. um, Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because... Uh, you look at Donnarumma domestically, AC Milan, look, look you know, AC Milan's a, a giant, isn't it? A club that's been way off the pace for a, lo- a number of years or 10 years or so. And they had a great a, a great season, really, without winning anything, but they had a great season last season to finish in those Champions League positions. Um, Donnarumma at the Euros, I thought was the best goalkeeper, hands down. But but that's the Euros, right? So yeah. we're, we're talking about, you know, obviously Edward Mendy can't play in the Euros, nor can <laughs> a lot of the other goalkeepers. Um, Edward Mendy's performances last season, I mean, there's, there's such a great argument to say that he is and should have won it. Um, 
and, and I find myself torn because I think it's probably more so based on name as well. I think mm. I, I think Donnarumma has been this 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 unbelievable talent for so long, and with Italy they continue this incredible run and win the European Championships. And Donnarumma played a huge part in that. was 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 fantastic. Mendy unknown really for so many people um, until this last season, and kind of grew into it. and And he's not flair. You know, he's not a lot of flair. There's a lot of bells and whistles with him. Hmm. And that's also what I really like about him. Actually, he goes about and does his job. And he makes it look easy at times. Yeah. And that's where I have a bit of an issue because I find that. A lot of other goalkeepers out there these days, it's more about how it looks rather than actually the performance itself and, and doing the job in, the, in, 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 a, in a certain way. So I feel for Mendy because he's a big reason why Chelsea won the Champions League last season. Massive. Um, yeah. He's a big reason why Chelsea in the end, obviously just scraped into making Champions League position, but was a big part of that. Mm. And he's continued that form this season. So yeah, I, I feel for him. I really do because he's been absolutely sensational. But again, go back to the award, go back to the way that they award all these awards with the Ballon d'Or, with you know, this particular award. It's based also a bit on history, international uh, trophies, awards. And the fact that Italy won the Euros, I think, swung it in favour of Donnarumma. The recency bias as well has come at the worst possible time for Mendy because he could be just as heroic and help Senegal win the AFCON in... You know, yeah. But it's the longest possible time away from when the voters will reconvene. So, but but, but in the same same token, I tell you, would that have been held in the same regard no. as, as Italy would in the Euros? No. So no, but, it, but it, at least if 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 it had happened just before the vote, maybe it has a bit of currency. But it's definitely going to be forgotten by this time. I think next it year. certainly would have carried a lot more weight and probably would have got a lot more push and, and media exposure. But not many people spoke about Mendy winning winning the uh, the Yashin Award. It was really about Donnarumma because, let's let's face it, how can you have a, a, a goalkeeping award, a Led Yashin award with all these goalkeepers involved, and one of the goalkeepers is actually up in the list to be Ballon d'Or winner? Yeah, yeah. It can, can, can only go one way then, isn't it? I mean, it's true. true. How, how can you have no other goalkeepers in that voting process and he then not win the Led Yashin award? Hmm. No, you're, so you're spot on. for me, it was it was already done with, you know, the minute they announced it. Yeah, yeah, they handled that poorly. Teo, I'm going to leave uh, one more question on the Ballon d'Or for you. Messi wins his seventh. Ronaldo is on five, and if recent form is anything to go by, it doesn't look like there'll be a six. But you know, he's proven people wrong before. Teo, seven to five. Does that put the argument to bed? Has that got anything to do with the Messi Ronaldo legacy? <laughs> Probably, especially for all the reply guys out there who just bombard every Instagram and Twitter post that is ever these guys. I, I think maybe the passing of time will help. I think that may be the only thing we've got left to assess these two. The 2022 World Cup, especially if Portugal miss out, is Messi's last chance at a free hit to have his legacy untouchable at that point. So it does feel as though the next 12 months or 18 months is going to play a significant role in how we assess the careers of the two. But I also think just another five years will help immensely. And seven to five may not matter in the short term, but it may be significant when we look back in five years. But who knows, one might retire a lot earlier than the other as well. Ronaldo, mm. with the way he takes care of his body and his potential legacy effect of playing in, say, an MLS or an A-League, we can dare to dream, but he may be well into his 40s by the time that happens. So I, I think that right now, in peak leagues at the top of their games, of course Messi's got an... But I do think the passing of time will help us make that decision more clearly. Mm, definitely. Yeah, and as we look at it, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, I'm a bit worried now as an Italian because Portugal will be in the same group as Italy to try and qualify for the World Cup. When he's revved up, there's usually no stopping him. Chelsea won an award this morning, which is another new award, Club of the Year. So Chelsea FC won that. They took on Cristiano Ronaldo's Man United on the weekend. And Schwartz, I want to go to you with one. Chelsea against Man United. It was our feature game here on Optus Sport. It finished 1-1 at Stamford Bridge. It felt watching it as though there was, there was only one team trying to play a certain way. Having a look at the way Man United United set up three holding mids. Michael Carrick, for an inexperienced manager, was that not what you'd expect from Man United? Was that shameful or was that a masterstroke of management to go there and grab a point at the league leaders? Oh, I think it's really good management. 
Yeah. I, I don't think it's a, it's it's shameful at all. I, I, listen, Man United are in a team that at the moment have been a team that that have underperformed massively. There's obviously a huge uh, problem with confidence. They've lost their manager, Michael Carrick's obviously taken over and has looked at a way to try and win the game. And yes, to the eye for a lot of people, uh, it, it's it's not nice. It's not pretty. It's not the typical Man United way. However, you're going against one of the best teams in the world at the moment who have been flying in Chelsea and can hurt you. And he set his team up to nullify Chelsea, to contain them, to, to absorb a lot of pressure, but hurt them on the counter and it almost worked for them. It really almost worked for them. Um, I, I think it was great. I mean, obviously, the minute you leave Cristiano Ronaldo on the bench, there's always going to be a huge debate as to, you know, is, how can you do that? Is it wasteful? Shouldn't he be in a side that can, can hit teams on the counter? I think the way that he set his team up, the way he wanted to play and the way they actually did play, I don't think there was room in, in the starting 11 for, for Cristiano Ronaldo. I actually think how he played it out was perfectly the, the right way. I think it played out really, really well. I mean, you could argue and say that I, I actually even questioned when he brought on Ronaldo at the time he brought him on. I yeah. actually thought he would have brought someone else on instead of Ronaldo. I would have, I mean, I, I thought that particular moment in time wasn't necessarily the right time to bring him on because you're not going to get the work rate. Of course, up the other end, you're going to get possibility of him maybe getting on the end of anything but they don't they weren't looking to go that far they weren't looking to press Chelsea they weren't looking to try and get him behind them whip crosses in and 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 play to Ronaldo's strengths so I was surprised when he did make the substitution to bring him on but 100% I, I agreed with him leaving him out Teo, does that mean that when Man United play a big team be it in the Champions League be it in the Premier League when they play top shelf then Ronaldo should not be in the starting lineup it's tough. I think uh, Michael Carrick, knowing that he was about to give up the interim caretaker reins, had this one opportunity, didn't have to worry so much about the potential politics of leaving Ronaldo out on a regular basis. It is the sort of thing you can do once, and there will be a degree of vindication to the fact that they got a result when they perhaps weren't expected to by many, except maybe only the, the most optimistic United fans. But no, I don't think this will be an ongoing thing. Surely in the discussions with Ralph Ranick, the role of Ronaldo and the importance of Ronaldo to the team has been discussed with him. If he plants his flag and, and Ronaldo stops playing these important games, I wonder, uh, will Ronaldo be looking for an exit strategy at the end of the season? Could he even try to force it? I don't think it'll happen in January, but... It's almost a circus of its own that would accompany a Ranić arrival that would be unnecessary and so hard to deal with. But, Mark, you would know the dynamics of these things far better than I. Just how difficult would it be to say, this is now the strategy we're going to take with Cristiano Ronaldo going forward? I don't think they will. Uh, you know what? I, I, I think it was a case of where United were at that particular time without a manager, w with a caretaker manager in charge. Once Ralph Rennett comes in, which he's obviously been appointed now as manager, once he has a bit of time to work with his players, um, he will devise uh, a strategy. He will look to incorporate Cristiano Ronaldo. There's no doubt. I mean, we, we're talking about one of the best finishers in the world still. He still is. If you get him in the right areas, give him the right service, he is still one of the best finishers. Um, the, the problem is when you're out of possession of the ball, how much you're going to get from him. And we, you know that you're not going to get a lot. If you look at all the top, top strikers in the world currently, if you talk about, say, just the other two in Benzema and Lewandowski, you look at their work rate. Their work rate is insane. They, they track back, they do their work, they close down from the front, they do all that. They're, they're, they're insane to watch. Um, Ronaldo just doesn't do that. So United need to get themselves in a position where they can afford to have their number nine not put in as much. Still, I'm not saying he doesn't do anything, because he does. But he does do a lot of conser uh, you know, conserving of energy. So they have to get to that point before I think he starts to play regularly necessarily or certainly for the for United to be firing then um, but I got no doubt he'll play a part and, and play play a big part between now and then in the season yeah he'll be saying uh, das ist nicht gut right you have to be pressing you have to be pressing there Schwartzy well, he, he'll speak English pretty well don't worry <laughs> tell me a bit about Ralph because I think um 
most football fans who follow around Europe and follow the German Bundesliga and of course the work he's done as a director of football I think that's what Man United fans are most excited about is his yeah. long term presence at the club however as a manager of a first team football club he's never won a major league trophy is that anything to worry about for United fans or is it more about the long term picture where you're going to see the effects of Ralph yeah I, I think it's more about the structure and I think that's something that people have been crying out for a long long time with Manchester United that you know when you talk about transfer policies, when you talk about uh, a style of football management, um, that's clearly been a problem since the, the you know since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club. You know they they flooded, they've won the odd trophy here and there. Um, you know they brought in Mourinho, which as much as he had success with them, wasn't enough. And I think part of the reason for that is the disjointment between play recruitment and then the management recruitment, not really gelling the two together. I don't see United really having a proper policy. You you look at you look at under under Solskjaer, they bring in Donny van der Beek, they bring in Jaden Sancho. Neither of them get in the side. Neither of them actually even given a proper opportunity to stake a claim. That to me just reeks of of a recruitment and manager not being on the same page. Mm. And you've, you've got to link the two. The two have to be linked. I'm not saying the manager needs to pick those plays. No. I'm, what I'm saying is you've got to have an understanding of what type of player you're recruiting, what system they're fitting into, and the manager's got to play them. He's got to work with them. He's got to develop them. That's what Ralph Rennick, Rennick does really well. And that's what the German system, the European system is a lot like, is that you have a director of football, you have a plan, you have a style of football, you recruit on that basis. Not only, When I say recruit, I don't mean just players. You recruit everyone on that basis. So the manager is equally recruited. That's what he did at, uh, at uh, RB Leipzig. He built the club up, helped build the club up from nothing and created a system, a formula that is still very much being used today. And, and it is, they are where they are now today and have been successful in terms of thinking about where they come from. Obviously, Manchester United are a very different club, you know, but I think what the big difference will be also the resources, the type of players that you're going to be able to attract to a United as opposed to RB Leipzig. RB Leipzig wouldn't sign a player un, un, over the age of 26. Yeah. You're not in, not in that sort of category, right? So maybe that transfer philosophy will slightly change. I'm not saying it's going to uh, that be the same policy, but he's certainly going to contribute. Well, I, I would believe, and I think it'd be mad if United don't listen to him. I think it'd be mad to bring him in, have him on a consultancy basis, and then not actually go through with it. That's the other interesting thing. How far will, are they prepared to go? How much will they accept and take on board and actually implement for them, you know, going forward. That's going to be the big challenge for them. Mm. Tao, they are up against Friday morning. They're up against Arsenal in the league who had a, a great 2-0 win, bounce back to winning form. This game has got very interesting head-to-head going into this one. United haven't beaten Arsenal in their last six Premier League appearances. Do you see that changing on Friday? Probably not. I suppose Solskjaer had such good results on that uh, really erratic basis against some of the big teams, but Arsenal was the one that he couldn't quite crack uh, in order to get those wins. I think Arsenal's performance against Newcastle showed that they were persistent, they were patient, they certainly took their time to finally break the deadlock, but when they did, they controlled the game. United have shown in the Villarreal game and now this Chelsea game, though, that they can defend. I mean, to not concede to Chelsea in open play is an excellent sign for them. I, I want to say that this is going to be a slight Arsenal edge at Old Trafford, but we saw from the Liverpool game that Arsenal have been able to pick off teams below them on the table, and then when the big test comes, if things go badly, they go really badly. It's a really good short turnaround from the Liverpool defeat to see just how much they've learned, how much Arteta has as well, because this is a Man United side that in theory should be vulnerable, and yet when they've been vulnerable, they still beat Tottenham quite comfortably. They've shown that they can win away in the Champions League, which is very credible as well, given all the turmoil and turbulence that is going on. So I think Arsenal with a very slight edge, but Manchester United will certainly be buoyed after that Chelsea result. Mm. And there'll be another bounce. Another new manager. Another yeah. manager to impress. There'll be another bounce. Hundred uh, percent. I can see I can see United, you know, really I mean I I, I know that on paper you would think Arsenal's slight favourites. I actually still fancy Man United to win the game. Hmm. Yeah, well, you talk about Arteta bouncing back, and it was a great result for Arsenal fans. But my question for you, though, Shorty, was he playing this Newcastle side? I was hoping Bridgie would be here this morning because I heard a few murmurs coming up that Newcastle has the worst squad of players in the Premier League. Do you agree with that? 
do they have the worst squad of players in the Premier League? Not necessarily, no. No, no. I mean, listen, I, they're certainly not. They're, they're nowhere near. They're nowhere near, nowhere near been, a, been a good squad. <laughs> are they the worst? No, I don't think they are the worst squad. Um, there's just been so much uncertainty around the club. There's been so much, uh, obviously, bad vibes around the club with regards to the fans' relationship with Steve Bruce, expectations of where the club were going, this whole ongoing saga of selling the club, which has obviously finally gone through. And I think the highs, the roller coaster, the ro- highs and lows of this roller coaster of emotion of appointing a new manager and how many managers they've kind of like supposedly were in discussions with, how many managers supposedly turned them down. And surely, and this is no disrespect to Eddie Howe, there must be a huge anticlimax with the appointment yeah. of Eddie Howe. Yeah. When you compare to all the other names that were mentioned mm. um, and supposedly in the end turned them down. Um, are, you, are Newcastle good enough to stay in the league? Yes, they are good enough to stay in the league. Hmm. Will they stay in the league? That's a good question. Oh, um, don't sit on the fence, Ross Schwartzy. You know, you, you love to go either side. Go on. Yeah, no, I mean, at the moment, at the moment, currently as it stands, I'm, I'm going to say <laughs> before January, they could already be in such a bad position. Who is even going to want to go there? Yeah. Yeah, we've spoken That's, about that. that. That could be their problem now. Teo, Newcastle are winless after 13 games. Only one team has ever saved themselves. That was Derby in 2001. Uh, five, the, the five others that were winless after 13 have all gone down and gone down convincingly. However, they weren't backed by 300 billion pound owners. Teo, are they saving themselves? The biggest short term is that Jamal Lascelles picked up another card and is going to be suspended for the game against Norwich. And if they can't beat Norwich at home, where is a win going to come from? So after that, they have Burnley at home, but then Leicester away, Liverpool away, Manchester City. So if they don't pick up, you'd have to say at least four points in these next two games, if not six. As Mark says, they're going to leave themselves in such a huge hole that he's right. It could be a disincentive for players to actually join them in January, regardless of the appeal of how much money and how how big a wage they may be able to offer them, because there will be a very real possibility that you'd have to spend a year in the championship in order to uh, find Premier League again. And I think that the owners, unless they can find a way to, to balance the books, I know they're in a good financial fair play position in order to spend in January if they need to. But my goodness, they need to beat Norwich in their next game and they probably need to beat Burnley as well because otherwise the hole is, is going to be enormous. Um, um, I wouldn't want to be in that recruitment staff at the moment. Some sleepless nights coming up for them. They have to win against Norwich. You're absolutely right. And Burnley, if the game is even on, gentlemen, Burnley-Tottenham, of course, was called off on the weekend, and that absolutely killed my fantasy team. Schwartzy, I needed I needed two points to win my game, and I had your boy Maxwell Cornet in there. I had Son I as well. Scored. He, he would have scored. scored. Guaranteed. I'm just saying he's flying. Even Michael Bridges is on board now and thinks he's a great player. <laughs> I brought it up last week and you weren't even here. He's got the best goals per minute ratio in the Premier League. And so we were giving him big ups last week on the episode. There we missed go. you on that one. But um, go. it got me thinking, Schwartzy, that was that looked pretty crazy, those conditions. What's, what's the worst conditions you've ever played in? Well, my, my the worst conditions I've ever played was, was probably my, I would say it was my sixth and last Bundesliga game um, <laughs> back in 1996. Um Actually, yeah, 1996, we were playing in... Uh, actually, it was 95. We were in Hansa Rostock. So we were playing against Hansa Rostock in Rostock, in the north of Germany, right near the North Sea. And it was December time and freezing. And the the pitch was frozen. And yeah. I'd never played. I'd never played on a pitch like it ever in my whole life. And I wore, uh, like, cork leather studs. So yeah. they had a nail in them. Um, and this and, and the cork was on the end of it. It was ridiculous, and I was literally bambi on ice. We got beaten three nil, and to dive on it was like diving on concrete. It was ridiculous. Oh. I don't even know how we played the game. Your feet would have been numb as as well. Jeez. That was the least of my worries, honestly. <laughs> I mean, that was honestly that was the least of my worries. It, it was just madness. And last game in Germany. So after that, you thought, I've got to get out of here. So where you go? You go to the beautiful weather of the UK, huh? Yeah, I was in Bradford and the weather was far, far better. I mean, that, that's, that winter, sorry, I left. So the following winter, I left Germany in 1996, November 1996. And 10 o'clock in the morning, getting in the car to drive up to training, it was minus 20 degrees. Insane. And I'm sitting in the car going, it's a bit chilly, isn't it? <laughs> and honestly, it was like, it was like, 
driving a car on an ice rink. Not that I've ever done that, but I can imagine that's what it was like. It was madness. You, you don't play the most mobile position either, so that 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 would no. hurt. You'd really feel the cold back there. Oh yeah, gosh yeah. <laughs> Very Ta- cold. Tao, in your experience in your football career, what's the worst football conditions you've ever seen, and a match being played on? Uh, it's a tough one. I mean, having experience right down the pyramid in, in the NPL, you see all sorts of, of bad, unacceptable pitches. Mud's, mud's never been the worst. I, I, nothing to compare with Mark, though, because it, it doesn't snow in Melbourne. As soon as you get to snow, to ice, to sleet, that is another level that I have never experienced. Uh, and I guess it's uh, a credit to the Australian weather that uh, these aren't the conditions that you face. I suppose credit, credit also has to go to, to Leicester and Watford to get that game completed because the way the snow was falling they they had to regularly clear the lines so you could see the penalty area and get to the end of that game and Leicester I think three goals were exchanged in the snow as opposed to the Burnley Tottenham game which didn't go ahead and was postponed and there seems to have been absolutely no debate on it that it was just the right decision and and Mark is that how it was received over there just a, a common sense thing to do. Yeah, it was. And I think a lot of the times it's not necessarily about whether or not the actual game of football can go ahead on the pitch. It was more about the accessibility for fans, the the safety issue about the lying of snow around the areas, the terraces, and, and they just couldn't clear that areas in, in those areas in time. So that's generally the issue. Um, so, yeah, there was no debate whatsoever about it being called off. And obviously they were even saying that there was some concern whether or not the Manchester City against West Ham game was going to go ahead. And obviously in the end it did. Um, but, yeah, at the moment, and it's, it's, it's just like that. The weather is, is quite extreme. Um, and we've had uh, some storm in the north of England uh, that's causing havoc. And the weather is all over the place. And it's absolutely, all I can say is it is bitterly cold. Um, and it's barely getting over about three degrees during the day. Um, but the sun is shining at the moment. So it's still a delight. Even though it's that cold, it's still a delight. And you're locked up in your, in your London mansion, Schwartz. I'm sure you're all right there. <laughs> Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, guys, I want to have a little bit of fun with the Premier League because um, I think results on the weekend, we saw City, you mentioned that game, they beat West Ham, so they put daylight between the top three and everyone else. And I think that doesn't really surprise anyone. We have a clear three at the moment, which are three of the best football teams in the world. Tay, I'm going to play a little fun game that we got going here. I'm going to give you three players. You got to tell me if you you got to start one, you got to bench one, you got to sell one. And we're going to start with you as our goalkeeping expert on the podcast today. Tao, Mendy, Allison and Edison. Who do you start, bench and sell? What a what a stitch up. Um, <laughs> uh, at the moment I am going to start Mendy. He's just finished second in the the Ashen Award and and Chelsea's uh, until the weekend, goal certainly not his fault. It was a, a giveaway by Jorginho in midfield. So both in terms of uh, short term memory and long-term performance I'm taking Mendy I'm benching Allison and Edison I'm going to sell because the rest of the Manchester wow. City team as much as Edison is a key part of the way they play I think that if you want a goalkeeper to make saves rather than control the game so to speak which is really Edison's role with his distribution and ability to play out from the back I guess that's the order I'm going to take them in but uh, yeah I'm definitely not the expert here so thanks for <laughs> throwing that one to me <laughs> Schwartzy do you agree? Uh, I'm, I agree with Mendy. I would probably bench Edison and sell Ellison. Wow. And yeah, because I actually think, um, I mean, listen, you, you put us in a really difficult position. I know you're saying, wow, but like, it's such a difficult one to, to make, you know, to, to call. Um, Allison, oh, listen, I'm a fan of all of them. Yeah. But you've, you, I've got to make a decision. So that's my decision. Well, the um, game's got to be fun, right? Yeah. Well, is it fun though? It's, it's fun for you. It's fun for me. <laughs> I mean, the, the Brazilian manager tends to start Allison over Edison, but that could have something to do with his neck tattoo. I don't know. You could be forgiven for that. <laughs> Never know, mate. Who knows? <laughs> but no, listen, I, I think uh, for that very reason, like was, what Taylor was saying there, you know, like Edison, I, I think 
it's underestimated how good a goalkeeper actually he is. And mm. he doesn't get exposed to a lot. He doesn't get opportunities to really show his, his true his true qualities other than with the ball. Mm. And we all look at Edison and go, he is a phenomenal footballer. Mm. Um, and he's not a bad goalkeeper because you don't get to see a lot of him. But I have watched a lot of him. I mean, when I say you don't get to see a lot of him, you don't see a lot of saves necessarily yeah. because he's not necessarily under those sort of pressures. Um, but I have seen over the years where he's played and he's played really, really well. And, and, and I think he's someone that has had an instant impact um, at City and he's quick. He's Feet are insane off the planet. I don't think there's a goalkeeper as good as he is with their feet. Um, yeah, as much as I like Allison as well. So and 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 Mendy. So and I, I think don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I'm going around in circles, mate. You are. Yeah. As soon as we talk goalkeepers, I can see the passion coming out. But one thing I will agree with you then is if if you do have Mendy and you do have Edison on your bench, then you have got two completely different styles of yes. goalkeepers that you could alternate. Whereas Mendy yep. and Allison might be closer together. So That's there you right. go. Good one. I like this next one is my favourite to be honest because. Um, this is doing the rounds on social media constantly, and this is Reese James, Alexander Arnold, and Joao Cancelo start bench sell. Schwartz, you can start this one. Um, I'm going to say uh, Trent Alexander Arnold start. Okay. Reese James on the bench, and I'd sell Cancelo. Wow, Taya. Yeah. I'm starting James. I think until the weekend he had a case to be the the player of the season because of the balance of goals and assists. Alexander Arnold on the bench, seven assists, second in the Prem. Impossible to put him behind Cancelo, who's the very unlucky one that I sell. Both selling Joel Cancelo. Yep. This is some real Brexit talk here. It's hard to argue with the numbers for both James and Alexander Arnold at the moment, though. They're both having phenomenal seasons, and it's made that attacking fullback role one of the most important positions on the pitch for any of the title contenders. So my my decision to play Alexander Arnold was based on the Ballon d'Or award. So over the last couple of years, he's been a better player. Even though Reese James <laughs> has been exceptional, right? And he's got that probably that little bit of extra flair. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Joel Cancelo, yeah, I mean, he's been class going forward this season. Maybe a victim of that same argument that you said for Edison. We don't get to see as much of his defensive traits when you're playing in a team like City, which hold the ball constantly, potentially. But fair enough, guys. Next one, we move into the the centre of midfield. Jorginho, Fabinho and Rodri. Teo. I'm keeping the faith with Jorginho. Maybe he's had a, a few moments, missed penalties, uh, bad give us away of possession, but I'm keeping the faith with him. I'm <laughs> starting him. Rodri, I'm putting on the bench, and Fabinho's the one I'm going to sell. Wow. wow. We're very different on this one. We're very <laughs> different. I'm actually going to start Fabinho. I'm going to put Jorginho on the bench, and I'm going to sell Rodri. Um, I, I'm a massive fan of Fabinho. I think he's a phenomenal player. As good as Jorginho's been, um, I think Fabinho has shown... First, his versatility. Listen, he, I mean, he, he went from being one of the best defensive midfielders behind behind Kante, of course, um, to to being a very very good centre half for for most of last season. Um, then goes back in midfield, and Liverpool realise, or certainly he shows everyone what they've been missing in midfield because he was being unbelievable. Uh, I think he's a phenomenal player. Hey, why why Rodri over Fabinho? Uh, I don't have a great reason other than uh, it's an incredibly tough decision. And if I'm going to keep the faith with Jorginho, I had to flip a coin for the other two. Yeah, fair enough. And plus, Optusport did a little feature on Rodri's Rockets. Every time he scores, it's an absolute banger from outside the box. So maybe yeah, that's the way you Other than Jorginho, so Fabinho scores scores rockets as well, doesn't he? So the two of them are similar in that regard. I'm, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not really a big fan of Rodri. I'm yeah, really fair. not. I mean, it's, you know, can't even get in the Spain team. <laughs> well, look, Schwartz, no one's going to argue with you, mate. You're the expert here today, so no one's going to argue with you, but I love it. I love. I was hoping we'd get some different answers on this one. My last one makes absolutely no sense, but you know what? I, it doesn't have to make sense. I just wanted to throw it to you guys because uh, I'm going to have a little bit of fun. You need to keep one, bench one, sell one, Angola Kante, Kevin De Bruyne, and Mo Salah. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Go on, Taylor. <laughs> right. So if, if I'm if I'm Mega Bucks Newcastle and I can buy all three of them, uh, I, I'm imagining we've avoided relegation and yeah. now we are opening our wallet. I'm buying Salah. I am benching De Bruyne, and so that means I'm selling Kante. Wow! Okay. Ouch! That's where we fall out big time, yeah. Taylor. <laughs> yeah, Schwartz. Yeah. 
Um, well, I, simple. I'm playing Kante. He's two mm. players. So I'm already at an advantage. So why yeah. would I change that, right? Um, benching Salah, selling De Bruyne. Selling De Bruyne. Yeah, because he, I want to bring Salah on. He's going to score me goals, isn't he? I know, yeah. I know De Bruyne. Listen, Kevin is insane a player. Mm. Um, but they all are. So, yeah. Would you say that as far as when you try and describe these three players, right? It's someone who defensively is just incredible, someone who's a playmaker, and someone who's a goal scorer. And would you say that yeah. the, the gap between Salah, De Bruyne, and the players that the alternatives maybe aren't that big, whereas the gap between Kante and defensive midfield alternatives is massive? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. He's so far ahead of everyone else in uh, that position. Fabinho, Fabinho's up there. But he's a, he's, a, he's a bit of a different player than Kante. I, there, there isn't anyone like Kante. That's mm. the thing. I, I don't. I can't think of anyone who I would compare him with. Yeah. You know, like we talked about before, Fabinho and, and Rodri. There, there's similarities there, right? Kante's the odd one out, mm-hmm. and I think that's also having played with him, having seen him up close, having watched him play very, very closely, um, seeing what he's like knowing what he's like as a character, knowing all those things. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. You did play with him Schwartz, and he was actually um, fifth on the Ballon d'Or rankings today as well. As a guy, everyone seems to love him. He just seems like such a gentleman yeah. of the game. How was he in the changing room? No, very much that. Yeah. I mean, when I, when he first came to Leicester, his English wasn't great. So he didn't speak a lot of English, but he had Riyad Mahrez there. They spoke a lot of French, a few other players. So, he, he spoke little bits and pieces, but always had a smile on his face. Maybe because he was taking the mickey out of me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but he always has a smile on his face. And yeah, you're right. I don't know anybody who has a bad word to say about him. Anybody, everybody and anybody who knows him, comes across him, loves him. Mm. Um, and the fact is he, he's a phenomenal footballer. There's, there's no, no two words about it. And the reason I think he's so lowly on the Ballon d'Or is because he was injured for a lot of parts of last season. Yeah. And that, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's phenomenal for a player to be on that list that was injured for a lot of times last season. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see him win one because that's, a, that's a, I guess, a position that probably doesn't get the love it deserves. Kante's yeah, he reinvented flair, it. See? He hasn't got the flair. Yeah. He doesn't go in that category, mate. Uh, so then all rubbish. of a sudden it's a cross against his name. <laughs> rubbish, Schwartzy. Um, but having a look at Kante, though, because you look at his progression as well as a player, and you, you were with him. Am I correct in saying you were with him at Chelsea as well? No. No, no so you I was weren't. at Leicester with him. So I'd left Chelsea to go to Leicester. Okay. And then we, we signed uh, Kante. And I played, a, I played actually his first... I played with him in his very, very first game in a Leicester City shirt. It was a League Cup game. Um, and from that game, we just went, wow, this yeah. guy is phenomenal. This guy is a f- fantastic player and he's going to be in the team very shortly. Did he dominate fitness at training as well? Or was he just like miles ahead of everyone? No, you know, the funny thing was that training initially you didn't really you thought geez he's fit geez he's, he's mobile he gets around i'm not sure you know what is he going to bring to the team and then he played and you just went there's nothing he can't do mm. i mean it's probably the one thing he probably certainly one area he's not his strength oh, there's two areas really okay he's not he's not phenomenal at hitting he's not great at hitting a ball mm. and the end product is not necessarily there right but he does everything else incredibly well. So, mm. you know, tracking down, reading the game, winning the ball back. He's shown also under under Sarri how he can actually play further forward. He can help set up. He can be, he's not going to be that playmaker, but he can help and he can play a part. But his best place is that holding midfield player. Mm. Um, he's, he's, his leg, you know, his, leg, his work rate, his, his ability to get back, read play, break down play, um, is is the best I've ever come across. And he, I mean, he showed it back at the King Power just two weeks ago. He dribbled three, four players, shot from outside the box with his left peg, and he scored. Teo, names like Makalele come up, names like Gennaro Gattuso come up, Patrick Vieira, I guess, come up. But in that in that holding role, is he the best ever? It's pretty hard to make an argument against it, especially now that Mark's made his case uh, as to why I was wrong to sell N'Golo Kante. Uh, and I, I always think of sort of the very brief window that Michael Essien had as that amazing, amazing box-to-box player, one of the best players in the world, but really only burnt brightly for a short time. And then N'Golo Kante, he, he's not as attacking as Michael Essien, but he is all the defensive work, he is all the territory coverage, and he is an attacking support. It's kind of like an, an evolution of that position, and, and Mark is dead right when he, he says that he is two players in one. 
Mm. And I, I kind of like the influence that Sadi had on him as much as it was very criticized early on. I think it's taken N'Golo Kante to another level because he now, now he has that dimension to his game, Shorty. Yeah, I think people recognize that, that he's got more to his game than maybe just being that defensive midfielder just sitting, who's sitting. He's got the ability to get forward, help out, um, mm. contribute, and he has scored the odd couple of goals. Most of them not particularly necessarily not well. He's not, you know, they, they, the goal, the goal's the goal, obviously. Yeah. But it's not, you know, you mentioned the name Patrick Vieira before and, and, I mean, we're talking, we're talking a different player it's as well. It's a different I mean, role, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a really different role. I mean, Patrick Vieira getting forward and getting on into things was was incredible. Um, in the air, he was far better than than Kante, but certainly not as mobile. Probably, yeah, I suppose Patrick Vieira in his height was as mobile. But again, the game's evolved a lot, and it, yeah. it evolved a lot from that time when Patrick Vieira was playing to now. So it, it's so hard to, to judge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no doubt he'll be he'll be an icon for many years to come. Also because of what he, the way he is off the park, I guess it's it's uh, it's rare to see a footballer earning millions of dollars and carry himself like that, flawless, literally. Uh, Teo, I'm going to bring it back home now. Our Matildas were in action on the weekend. They're in action again later tonight. And uh, it was it, firstly I want to say off the pitch, it was fantastic to see an incredible crowd turn out. Atmosphere was buzzing. We had the Wiggles before the game. It was just every, everything going on there, right? But Teo on the park, we lost that home to USA. That is 32 games against them. We've only ever beaten them once at home against the USA side that it, let's be real, a lot of superstars missing. 3-0 at home. Should we be worried? Yeah, we should. I think the halo effect of being the World Cup host has protected a lot of the harsher criticism, which is now starting to come. And I think this game was the tipping point. People are looking at the way Tony Gustafsson, the Matildas coach, is setting up his defence, playing Jessica Nash first game at 17, Courtney Nevin, who... Uh, is being picked on the basis of how well she's doing in training and in camps. The evidence in actual games isn't stacking up. And I think we're at the point where we're in a World Cup cycle. I think short-term thinking is okay, even if it means going back to known quantities like Jenna McCormick or Emma Checker or maybe just looking at older defenders. I'm, I'm really not on board with this idea of blooding teenagers 18 months out from the World Cup. We've got an Asian Cup that we're going to as well, and we'll walk the group stage due to the group stage draw. It's really, can we beat Korea, China and Japan in the knockout stages of the Asian Cup? So they'll get a bit of momentum up and they'll be feeling good at the end of the group stage, but it's really a question of, can we beat our peers at the top of the AFC Confederation? But I do think it is time to start thinking a bit more short term. Yes, it's great that these young players are getting a go, and I'm going to be commentating them in the A-League women's, and I'm going to be looking for the breakout star, whether it's a holding midfielder that we desperately need, a ball-winning wrecker in midfield, or a centre-back, which we also kind of desperately need at the moment. But the problem is that these results are starting to to really stack up, and Tony Gustafsson's win draw loss record is actually really poor. We all loved the run at the Olympics, but we still only actually won one game within 90 minutes, and that was against New Zealand. So I think that the tide is just starting to turn a bit. And do I think we can beat the United States tonight? Hey, they experimented a lot on Saturday and still won quite comfortably. If they experiment even more, they might actually reach a tipping point where we can get a result. But I think it's really up to what the USA do, more so than what we do. Mm. But Teo, is, is 18 months out to a World Cup it, you you say that you know we haven't got necessarily the time is this the time to do it uh, why why are we judging now on results right so the ultimate goal is to actually go and perform at the world cup right on home soil be that team peak at the right moment you don't want the girls peaking right now okay so the performance has not necessarily been there there's been glimpses you like you mentioned there the olympics but you don't want them firing right now and let's look back at the men's for example the socceroos 2000, um, 2014 World Cup. The 2014 World Cup was a training camp, effectively, a training tournament for the Socceroos to be ready and to peak for the 2015 Asian Cup. Mm. To win that, to perform and win that on home soil. So we're talking about a World Cup as basically a stepping stone, a, a pot, an opportunity to bleed in a new team, bring a new team together, lost everyone, everyone in the games, considered three goals in every game, and to be ready to play at an Asian Cup and win it on home soil. So my point is being, I think it's a bit premature to, to judge him right now because you either go with the, you either go with the, the, the plan, you either look at it and go, okay, 
has this guy legitimately got a plan? Has he got a vision? Has he got the ability? This is the other thing. Has he got the ability as a coach to get it right and have the Matildas performing at peak come the World Cup in 2023? Because that's mm. when it means the most. Look, and, and that's why I say the halo is slipping. It hasn't slipped. I think that there's still a lot of trust from most of the media covering the Matildas at the moment that there is a plan to this. But if the plan is we're going to go to a World Cup and we're going to start Ellie Carpenter as a centre-back and not use her in her best position, which is as a right full-back or right wing-back, if we're going to go to the World Cup and play Courtney Nevin, who has never really looked good at left-back as a centre-back, then these are it's almost a bridge too far with some of the experimentation we're seeing so i think yeah we we do have enough time to meander towards a plan but by the same token laura brock a married name of laura alloway retired from international football recently i would be on the phone saying laura get fit in your own time mentally refresh and then come back and play a league women's not this summer but next summer i i think we we need to keep the door open to the veterans and the experienced heads players like ella mastro antonio who's playing in italy who's been briefly on the Matildas' radar, but off the radar. There are quite a few players overseas that Australia hasn't brought back. They actually picked six players based in New South Wales where the NPL New South Wales season was cancelled because of the lockdown. So there's a lot of players whose only football has been training camps and uh, effectively training sessions with the Matildas and no competitive games. Charlie Rule, Remy Seamson, and they're being thrown in now to take on the world champions. So the results aren't surprising in that respect, but I do think moving closer to what our ideal 30 and then our ideal 23 is would be nice because the experimentation right now is leading us down paths that I don't think we should persist with. But, but then in 18 months' time, that 30 can be very, very different to what we actually have now. Do you know what I mean? So, you, you that, I mean, I know 18 months doesn't seem like a long time. It really is in terms of football and performances and, you know, fluctuating in form, injuries and so forth. It, it is quite a long period of time. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm being the devil's advocate, right? Because I'm not 100%. I, I don't know enough about Gustafsson to say whether or not he's the right man. So what we're relying on, we're relying on the, the, the you know, the Australian Football Federation having made the right decision, believing that they've got that decision right. That wouldn't be the first time they got it wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think New Zealand hired the coach we should have hired. When Alan Stadjic left, I actually suggested that Yitka Klimkova, who at the time was coaching the USA under-20s team, would have been an ideal replacement because she won a title with Canberra United. She knows Australia. I think politically she would have ticked a lot of the boxes in terms of knowing who's who in the zoo. And I think the Kiwis have, uh, have trumped us. And I know we're supposed to be co-hosting a World Cup together and we're supposed to be getting along, but if we had the chance to poach Yitka Klimkova off the Kiwis, I'd go and do it. <laughs> there you go. Big call there from Teo. Do you think, guys, Schwartzy, when you're hosting a tournament, is that because you're not playing any competitive games to qualify for that tournament and you're stuck playing these friendlies on home soil, which, yes, they're, they're a great spectacle, but they don't actually mean anything, does that, I guess, impact your preparation for a major tournament when you are the host? Um... Listen, I, I've never been in that situation before, but I, I would I would envisage yes. Um, I would say it is a difficult a difficult process. However, you've got a new manager, someone that needs to overhaul an aging squad, or felt like he's had to, and therefore has done it. And this is what Taylor's obviously argument is that there are are there experienced players out there that should possibly be brought back in, should certainly be looked at, uh, or certainly, but you know, we we don't know. Maybe he has still got an eye on them. Maybe he is. Waiting. Maybe he's going. Okay, I'm going to go with these these girls. The problem I have is, you you mentioned there, Taylor. Six of the girls are from New South Wales and haven't played any football recently. And you're playing against the best team in the world. My problem is you're playing. You're pipping the the, the Matildas against the best football team on the planet. Mm. In a time when they're not ready, really, they're not at that level. And you're going to get results. What you you know as we're getting right now. And and that's the only thing I would say as a player. I'd be going okay. It's all well and good. It's getting bums, you know, bums on seats, people through the doors. But that can go, that can, that can fall away very quickly if the results don't follow and the performances don't follow. And there's, there's a knock-on effect that you, you are still trying to find the right combination of players. You've got a new manager who's still finding their, their, his way. And the, more, the longer it goes on and the results go against you, the more the pressure builds. So 
I would question even playing into USA at this particular moment in time. So you got to pick your friendly matches carefully. I'm, I'm thinking oh, about a time. 100%. I'm thinking about a time when the Socceroos, when we had those back-to-back bad defeats, six yeah. nil and six nil, wasn't it against Brazil, Brazil and France? Play Brazil in Brazil, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can go into it in depth, right? I mean, <laughs> that's another podcast. But the yeah. preparation, <laughs> the way they look after you, it's ridiculous. You've got yeah. so limited time. You're there for three days against a Brazil side that are hosting the World Cup. Um, what was it, uh, eight months, nine months later, hmm. and or ten months later, and they had, they'd only lost like three games in four years. Hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> insane, right? And then, yeah. and then, then you're playing France yeah. the next month in, yeah. in Paris. Yeah. Again, limited time to prepare, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you're under hiding to nothing. Yeah. You yeah. really are. So you've got to question the governing body for taking those games. Let's chat quickly about the Socceroos because we had the draw for all the final World Cup qualifiers and we'll talk about Europe in a second. But now talking Asia, I guess we can't rely on that because it's the way we made the World Cup in 2018, but it was the dreaded one that we didn't want to see is that if the boys do finish third in our group, we would have to navigate our way through fifth place in Conmebol. Teo, if we come third, are we doomed? Well, let's not let's not underrate how difficult p- playing potentially the UAE in the third place playoff could be just to get through to that match against the Commonwealth. Yes, it would have been far nicer to draw uh, OFC, so effectively New Zealand or the fourth placed North American team, which could still end up being the United States or Mexico, and, and just as difficult as Commonwealth. I think the only thing we've got going for us is that it's a one off game at a neutral venue, and we won't have to go through the the arduous task of going to the South American country dealing with the airport the the hotel the fireworks and brass bands and whatever else might be waiting no, no for brass you brass bands mate no brass bands <laughs> <laughs> well uh, mark do, do you think uh, i know that we miss out on the opportunity to have a night like 2005 or an, a, a night like the uh, the qualifier we had against honduras but is it is that the trade off for a better football opportunity to play a one off game at a neutral venue which uh, unfortunately i think will be quite sterile yeah, it will be. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's not it's not great. It's not an, an ideal scenario, definitely not, because this is this is a cup final, isn't it then? It becomes the cup final uh, of all cup finals. Um the, there's no there's no bad days at the office allowed. There's you know, you you've got to hit the ground running and you've got to make the most of that of that, you know, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, whatever it will be, penalty shootout if it comes to that. Um let's just qualify through the group because they're still more than capable of doing so. They've got the ability to do so. They've got the games remaining to do so. They've just got to get back on track. They're clearly fallen off track. They're clearly down on confidence. Um, They need to get back up on it. And the next... Next game is crucial. Obviously, every game, every game they're playing now between now and the end of the qualifying um, group stage is absolutely crucial to them. You don't want to be in a playoff. You know, Mm. we, we we did see it. You know, four years ago. And in the end, it was, I wouldn't even say, it was reasonably comfortable in the end. Yeah. But you don't want to go through that because anything can happen. And now when it's just down to one game, that is completely different altogether. Yeah, and I think when you look at it, the draw may favour us in the sense that, look, there's no easy game at this stage of qualification, but you can build up to those final two games. You can build up to Japan and Saudi Arabia. Schwartzy, which one is more of a winnable game, Japan at home or Saudi Arabia away? Um, listen, I'd like to say I'd like to say both of them are actually. Um, I'd like to say that that Japan at home is never an easy game, but there's something about Australia Australia playing against Japan, particularly at home. Mm. Have we lost that fear factor that Japan always had playing against us? Quite potentially, quite possibly, we have, because our moment to beat Japan was in Japan just recently, because Japan were on their knees. Yeah, there was an incredible opportunity to to really really put the sword into them as you know kind of befittingly but we didn't take it you know and and that that that's the thing that probably even irks more is the fact that we had an opportunity to really really cement our or certainly get one foot um through to the to the to the world cup but again i've played in saudi arabia i've been there i've done it i know what it's like it's not easy You've got to have the right mindset, the right plan. You've got to go there and do the job and everyone's got to perform. And not necessarily going to be pretty, but you're going to have to perform, roll your sleeves up and work incredibly hard. And the conditions are never easy. Um, it's hot, it's humid. Um, it's quite volatile uh, atmosphere. But they're games that I expect the Socceroos to win. Yeah, I always wanted to ask you this one. 
This is just just popped into my head, Schwartzy, right? I always wanted to ask you. 2006, you played Japan. When you watch that back, is that a foul on you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen it. You know what? The thing is, right? This is, this is the really interesting thing that I, you know, half, uh, what was it? At halftime, Gus Hitting, you know, gave me near full saying that I had to be stronger. And I was just like, okay, fine. The manager sees it one way, can say what he likes. Uh, and for me, it was a clear foul. And I've seen it again. You look at the attacker. Mm. One of the attackers jumps into me and he's, he's got his back to the ball. He's not even going for the ball. Yeah. So he's clearly taking me out. And the referee apologized to me after the game and said okay. to me, I'm sorry, I got the decision wrong. And thankfully you won because it, it changed it. it. You know, you guys won and it changed. So you didn't lose off the basis of my decision. Wow. Okay. So, but people always have an interpretation as, oh, of course. as, with, as with the penalty decision on Grosso, you know, whether mm. it was a penalty or not a penalty. I asked Bresh that one actually during the Euro coverage. I asked him, I said, if VAR was around, would that have been a pen? And he didn't give me an answer. He thought about it, and he didn't give me an answer. Yeah, you know what? I, I think they probably would have stuck to the referee's decision. Yeah, yeah, because it's not enough it's not, to overturn. It's, it's not a clear and obvious mistake. Yeah, do you agree and with that one, Taylor? Interpretation. Yeah, I think in the saner way we're seeing VAR used, and, and the Euros was really the beginning of using VAR in a, a far more pragmatic and, and sort of acceptable manner, absolutely they'd stay with the referee's decision. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh well, we could we could as as Schwartz said before, this could be a whole different podcast if we go down memory lane of the soccer is guys. We are running out of time, but uh, we've got so much coming up on Optus Sport. I just want to remind everyone that we've got midweek football here as well, cracking Premier League action. So I'm going to hit a few quick fires with you guys because the football continues well into next year. First one, I'm going to go really short term. Coming up this week, we've got a Merseyside derby. Is there any chance? Firstly, Teo, is there any chance that Everton can get a result against Liverpool? No, I think I think Liverpool go to um, Goodison Park and win. Schwartz, do you agree with that one? I think there's more chance of a red card and another injury. Yeah, okay. Doom, doom, doom for Everton fans. They won't like hearing that. But um, next one I wanted to go just before we wrap up. We've, we've spoken about the international football and, and next year, of course, it's all going to come to that climax. And Schwartzy gives me a bit of stick here about Italy being in the playoffs again. They've been what? drawn with Portugal. Yeah, you do. You do, which is fine. I'll cop it. <clears throat> They've been drawn with Portugal. If the two, and, and it's not said that they're going to meet in that final because Italy play North Macedonia, Portugal play Turkey, but if the two meet in a one-off game, who wins it? Schwartzy. Oh. <laughs> it's just, a, it's, it's a coin flip. It, it really is. I mean, I'm just trying to think, you know, you, you look, again, I think for Italy, it depends on who's fit. Mm. That, that's their biggest issue. That's their biggest concern for Italy right now is, you know, is Kiesa going to be fit? Mm. Um, who else is going to be fit? You know, anyone injured? You know, you, you, look, at, you look at Bonucci, Chiellini. Yeah, even Verratti. Gonna, Verratti, you know. Constantly injured. That's, that's the other thing. The whole Juventus saga that's mm. broke over the last couple of days, is that going to affect them? Juve is having a bit of a stinker. Will that yep. continue? Where are they? Yep. Not a rumor. How many games is he going to get at PSG? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a lot of factors there. That's the biggest concern I have for for Italy. Mm. When I look at Portugal, you look at uh, Bruno Fernandes, mm. million miles off the form that we saw him uh, being last season at Manchester United. Ronaldo, how much is he going to be playing football between now and now? I think he'll play a lot. So mm. I think that's less of a concern. Yeah, I, I, I at this moment in time, I'm slightly favouring Portugal, slightly. Yeah. They'd be at home for that game as well, which is uh, another massive factor. Nonetheless, Teo, uh, I'm sure we'll be we'll probably have a, a pod on those games. But the the last one I wanted to ask you: there's a good chance. Well, there is a chance that Wales could meet Scotland for a place in the World Cup. And Teo, if that happens, who's your money on? I think we had three games evidence of Scotland at the Euros of what they're like in a big, high-pressure one-off situation. Wales at home, trying to make the World Cup for, what, the first time in 68 years uh, with a, one of the best big-game players in Gareth Bale with Aaron Ramsey, who, not playing at Juve, is seeing the Welsh national team as his ability and freedom to express himself. I'm taking Wales, absolutely. As, as much as it pains me with a bit of uh, Scottish heritage on, on mum's side, I'm taking the Welsh. Brilliant. That depends on whether Gareth Bale and Ramsey are fit. I know Ramsey's not playing at you, but he's still get injured. <laughs> and, and Gareth Bale has obviously had injury issues and could only play 45 minutes in the last World Cup qualifying round. So, again, that, that's again a toss of a coin at this moment in time. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, difficult to say. I, I do. One thing I do love about the Welsh, it just really seems like the boys want to be there when it comes to international duty. It just seems like they come to another level when they get called up. It's a bit like what we've seen with the French in recent years. It just seems like they really take it in their stride. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me today on the Gagan Pod. We've gone all around the world, international football, club football. We've brought it back home and we've hit the hard topics as always. Teo, you've been a phenomenal guest. Thanks so much for joining us. What's, what's on for the week? You any big plans? Uh, two A-League women's games in commentary, including the season opener between uh, Wellington Phoenix playing in the comp for the first time in Western Sydney Wanderers and then Sydney versus Newcastle on Saturday. So I'm going to have a fun and busy weekend and I'll be back in here at uh, Optus working on a bit of Premier League uh, stuff behind the scenes as well. So I'm really excited about what's coming up. Brilliant. Cracking week and uh, you're going to etch your name into history. That's it. Wellington's first A-League women's match and you'll be hearing your voice there. Fantastic. Schwartzy, big plans for you, mate. A glass of red and bedtime? Uh, Tonight? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not. Glass of red? No, probably not. Um, But yeah, bedtime very very, very shortly, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I heard you caught up with Cammy Devlin. Apparently, he was, uh, he was starstruck to, to chat to you. A um, little bit, I think. Um, <laughs> no, he was really great. It was great to sit down and have a chat with, actually. Um, great to see... Great to see him for the first time. First time I met him. Um, great to hear his story, his journey so far. And the other thing that's overwhelmingly uh, kind of was the, the feeling I got and the impression I got around the club was how much everyone loved him. Um, and the, some of the fans that I met in and around the stadium uh, when I arrived, how much they've taken to him. And he's a fan favourite already in a very short period yeah. of time. And he's a regular in their side. So, And they're, they're doing pretty well from a side that just got promoted back into you know, the Scottish Premiership. Yeah. Yeah, I played with and against him for many years. So he's, he's a great he kid. He's a yeah, really good he, kid. He came across really, really well. Someone yeah. that really um, seems to be determined to grab hold of this opportunity. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, all the indications are so far that he's, that he's done incredibly well and he's taking the opportunities. Mm. Awesome. Well, fantastic work. I think everyone can catch up on Optus. I'm pretty sure it's been released. If not, it will be very shortly. It's a cracking chat. Schwartzy with Cammy Devlin, who's lining it up in the Scottish Prem. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. As always, you can check out the Optus Sport app. It's got everything you need from a football point of view, plus much more as well. Take my word for it. Thanks, Schwartzy. Thanks, Deo. And we'll see you next week for some more Gagapod. Gagapod.